and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I should say up front, uh, we still have this, uh, what do you even call it, a 30-day trial for the Dispatch um, up and running. I think there are a couple more days left for you to give it a shot. Uh, response has been pretty good so far, could be better. Um, I know that there are Dispatch, I know that there are Remnant listeners out there who are loyal listeners, who are not subscribers members to um the dispatch and if you um um, want to support what i'm doing here or if you want to support what we're doing overall um this is a great time to give it a try it's essentially for free because you you get 30 days for free to see what you're missing and if you like it you can become you can stick around and if you don't that's fine uh it's not like i'm gonna come to your house and you know make you stop listening to the podcast or anything like that. So give it a try. If I sound a little discombobulated, it is pre-dawn. It is not even light out yet. Um, my wife, to escape my snoring last night, is slept on the couch, so I'm a little worried about being too loud. Um, I'm recording so early, um, in part because the dogs didn't wake me up to take them for a walk, so I have a little extra time. And more importantly, because I am getting in a plane and um um winging my way to california to see my daughter which i'm very excited about and i'm leaving in a couple hours so um i i'm a i'm usually at least caffeinated before i start this thing but i am caffeinating in real time as i talk so please um overlook any um strange uh fumbles or or brain flatulence uh, we try to keep it clean around here. Um, um, as I as I work my way through whatever the hell I'm going to talk about, and I think I want to start with um, I don't know. I, I mean, I told you so is such a crude way of putting it, but like I feel more and more vindicated, which is always dangerous, um, um, because you don't want to get cocky or just assume because you have an insight that um, that proves to be right that other insights will prove to be right as well um but i think i'm on record for a while now saying um you know my whole both parties want to be minorities people you know party politicians need to be you know whichever party can claim the mantle of representing normal people um will succeed and there's just the, the evidence for this just keeps mounting and the latest um it's also i think it's interesting that, that that that's where peggy noonan came out about 10 days ago and i've been pounding my spoon on my high chair about this for a couple of years um but uh you know more the merrier and um um it's you know where where to begin the d triple c the campaign arm for the uh Congressional Democrats, you know, just came out with this report, study, finding, um, grab you by the lapel and scream in her face saying, what the hell is wrong with you, report thing, saying that, um, you know, I mean, they had to they had to say, you know, the Republicans' culture war attacks are, are shockingly effective. Um, but if you 
sort of read between the lines and read the fine print and read what it actually says, it's basically that a bunch of fairly normal people of the center left independence, you know, uh, Biden Yunkin voters um, are kind of fed up with the stupidity of uh, the sort of the woke messaging of the Democrats. And, you know, defund the police was not popular. It was never popular. Um, you know, taking literally this idea of taking, you know, of defunding the police, um, um, you know, you know, which a lot of people, when they realized how unpopular it was, tried to say, well, that doesn't mean abolish the police. That means rearranging funding. And then people would, you know, then the activists would come forward and say, no, no, it really means abolish the police. Um, uh, that was never, there's never popular. Um, they didn't even poll on it because even the po normal polling, as I've said a million times around here, was uh, showed that most Americans wanted the same amount or more police, including among uh, minority communities. So it was just a dumb idea. It was one of these things that sounded fun at the seminar level, like Latinx and birthing person and all this other nonsense, but in reality was incredibly stupid. And then you have rising crime, which I don't think was actually caused by the defund the police stuff because there wasn't that much defunding of the police going on. And, and the crime is everywhere. And the few places where they did cut back on spending on police, the process was too slow to actually have a direct causal relationship. Um, but you know, when crime starts skyrocketing all around you and people hear, and people remember that in the last 18 months, Democrats were talking all about this defund the police stuff, people can connect those dots. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say there is some connection between the anti-police rhetoric of the last couple of years and some of the violence out there. But I don't think it's a really strong one. Um, I, you know, in politics, you get blame or credit for the rhetoric that is associated with policy problems or successes. So I think it's fair game to criticize all that stuff. But um, I think the crime stuff, I, I think the crime spikes are more complicated and all that. It doesn't matter. But anyway, the DCCC is realizing that, holy crap we sound out of touch focus groups say we sound out of touch um the what i particularly love is how you know i wrote about this in a, a week ago two weeks ago about how it takes two sides to fight a culture war this notion that um republicans are the only ones who launch culture war issues or that the culture war is purely something that comes from the right is hot garbage always has been um and, uh, um, you know, I mean, just to exp explain what I'm, what I mean here, uh, if you talk to progressives and Democrats, um, in a good faith way about what they're proud about, about, you know, American progressivism, or if you want to call it liberalism or the democratic party and its successes, whatever, a huge chunk of them involve imposing changes from above across the country and i want to be very clear some of them were desirable and good and history will judge them well for it you know um you know the story of civil rights in america is a little more complicated than democrats good republicans bad but you know it's certainly true that lbj was the one who pushed for the civil rights act you got a lot of support from republicans but you know democrats and liberals in particular um or progressives in particular were more on the right side of uh that that fight, or at least progressives believe they were, we don't have to get into this huge head count about how many Republicans versus how many Democrats voted for what, 
it's the story that progressives tell about themselves is that they're the party of civil rights. Well, you know, if you're going around breaking up, smashing existing systems across the country to impose your will, you're the aggressor in a culture war. Same thing with things like gay marriage or the trans issue, whatever you may think of that. Um, uh, and the thing that has annoyed me for years is the way whenever there is resistance to these large sweeping efforts to impose societal change, the resistance is called the aggression in the culture war. It's like, you know, it's the battered spouse who, who punches back and, and the bully says, how dare you attack me? Um, you know, the gay baker is the, is the bastard for trying to impose his views when, you know, you have people flying cross country in this sort of stunt test case to buy a gay wedding cake. Um, and everyone like thinks, oh, that's fine. But this guy who's minding his own business is all of a sudden, you know, uh, turned into the Attila the Hun of aggressors in the culture war. And anyway, uh, back to the point at hand, I'm so tired, uh, back to the point at hand, uh, voters, according to this, the triple C thing, um, are picking up on it and they're like, you know, you guys are the ones who keep changing the words. You guys are the ones who keep changing, you know, what it means to be not racist. You're the ones who say that being not racist isn't good enough. I have to be anti-racist. And that means I have to agree with everything that you guys are saying. And I don't like it. And the, the, the most telling sign of all this is in San Francisco, where this school board recall thing is just amazing. And you can have all the caveats you want, you know, um, was there outside money poured in? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this school board which is full of sort of caricatures of um, precisely the kind of, you know, you know, it's like they're the kind of people that, you know, if they didn't exist, Republicans would have to invent. Um, uh, you have these school board people who spent the pandemic uh, berating, attacking, defaming, uh, condescending, uh, sneering at parents who wanted schools to reopen. Um, and instead of putting much, if any effort into figuring out how to do that, you know, figuring out how to do classes outside or something like that, they spent the, you know, the bulk of their energies renaming schools and getting rid of like, you know, Abraham Lincoln school. Um, and they, the was, I think it's called the Lowell school in San Francisco, which is, the or, or among the most prestigious, you know, um, academically rigorous school, public schools in the city, uh, they changed the admission standards from merit to lottery, which Asian American parents, you know, a lot of whom are, are immigrants, saw as a direct attack on them. I mean, you know, they've been making their kids do, you know, five extra hours of homework a night or whatever it is. And uh, so they can get into these schools and then, you know, they shut down all the schools and they changed the rules and it ignited a whole bunch of parents to um, say, screw this. And I love, um, love, like a friend of mine was saying how, you know, it's amazing how the 
the, the hard left is blaming all of this on white supremacists and Republicans and outside money and all that kind of stuff. I was like, they can't be. I mean, not really. And he, I, I was like, send me anything you see on that. And he just he deluged me with these tweets from like various sort of hard uh, left groups in San Francisco, for the most part, claiming that white supremacists, you know, uh, were behind this vote or that this was. Uh, this is proof that you know white supremacy is alive and well in San Francisco, um, and the thing is, you know, I, I think I think in San Francisco there, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think it's seven percent registered Republicans. Maybe it's eleven percent. I, I doubt it's that high. It's a very low number, and um, um. And, you know, there are these pieces about the parents who were part of the recall effort, you know, and one of them was this, you know, this dude who at this victory party or something was dressed up like uh, uh, what he called Gabraham Lincoln, you know, was this gay guy who was like furious that, you know, the school board had spent their time and energies renaming, you know, getting rid of the name Abraham Lincoln while actually not doing anything to actually fight, um, for the better education of the kids and um i love this kind of stuff because let me put it this way if i if i if 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 i were um more invested in the long-term success of the republican party or the, or the, the i guess i'm a little bit invested in the long-term success of the republican party but I'm completely uninvested in the current Republican Party for the most part. Um, I want, you know, I want Kevin McCarthy to, to be voted out of office. I want the entire Republican leadership voted out of office, um, at least in the House. I'm, I'm more okay with McConnell um, than a lot of my sort of wildly anti-Trump friends say I should be, um, because I think McConnell is a grown-up, um, and he has... Uh, you know, grownups make compromises that the super idealistic can't stand. Um, but grownups also know where bending is inappropriate um, and and do not cross certain lines. And so I, I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for, for Mitch McConnell and some of the Senate leaders. You know, and I, I certainly like Mitt Romney. I like Ben Sass. You can go down a list of those kinds of people. But regardless, I, I don't want to get go down that rabbit hole. My only point is, like... If the Republican Party were the healthy, um, serious, normal, American-supported conservative party that I would like it to be, um, I would find these responses by sort of San Francisco Democrats just unalloyed fantastic on a sort of partisan basis because um, thinking that you lost these recall races by like 75 to 20 and I think I think the margins were like 72, 74, and 75 to like 22, 23, 24, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But when you lose these races, a recall race by three to one for a school board thing, and your response is, well, obviously, you know, the white supremacists and the Klan and, you know, and, and, and the Proud Boys, they're, they're ones responsible for this in San Francisco. It means that you are so deep in your paranoid little bubble, in your bunker, um, that uh, it is literally like impossible for you to 
get close enough to the middle to win back the loyalties of voters. And it gives an opportunity for Republicans to, to creep in and, um, um, and make California or at least San Francisco a little more competitive politically. And, you know, don't get me wrong, people who vote Republican, you know, the, the, it's like I, I often tell people who don't have kids, you know, the biggest change is from zero to one, right? That's, you know, all increases from zero are infinite. And if you have no kids in your life and then you have a kid, um, that's just a huge radical change in your psychology and your orientation and your, and your outlook. And yeah, so like having eight kids is, is an unimaginably complicated, difficult thing in all sorts of ways, but it's a multiplication of the, of the change paradigm, um, more than anything else. And similarly, I only bring this up because like, you know, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is if all your life you thought it was impossible for you to vote Republican, um, and then you vote Republican, it creates a rationalization and permission structure um, kind of situation where you want to defend what you've already done, and you're looking for opportunities to defend it by doing it again. And so if you have a lot of first-time Republican voters in places like Virginia, places like San Francisco, places like New York, um, uh, that should be very, very worrisome to, to Democrats. Um, and so anyway, I, 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 I think this sort of response is in a, if I were a purely partisan Republican, I would want to encourage more of this, you know, you go ahead and you call the sort of, you know, disproportionately gay, affluent, uh, you know, progressive, diverse voters who voted these clowns, um, off the school board, you keep calling them white supremacists. That'll work out great for you. Um, but you know, I'm, I think it's a little more complicated because, uh, the way the system is set up right now, um, the crazier one party is the more the other party thinks is it gives them permission to be crazy too. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work is when one party veers too far to the left or to the right, the other party sees that the center of gravity of American politics has been freed up and it rushes to it because that's where elections are won. And I, I missed that dynamic. That was the dynamic of most of the 20th century, um, even some of the 21st century. And, um, and that's what I think the country desperately needs to get back to. And so if the Republicans had the right reaction to this, which is to say, gosh, look at those crazies, we're the normals, that would be great. It is just not obvious to me that that is the reaction everyone's going to have. Anyway, so let's move on um, to what? To, well, sort of related, I guess, which is something else I've been sort of, you know, I, I go back and forth between being amused by really terrible ideas and being, and being um, scared of the fact that people think it's okay to float these terrible ideas as, as um, sort of intelligent, mainstream, knowledgeable, you know, part of the civic discourse conversation kind of thing, you know, 
Um, this is why I, I was so adamant that the alt-right not be included into the conservative coalition, because I just don't, they make a lot of arguments that I just don't want to be considered legitimate points of view. And um, it would be great if there was more policing of that kind of stuff on the left. I mean, like now you can see lots of, you know, mainstream liberals, um, and I, I, I'm going to, by the way, on this podcast, I think I'm going to start trying to enforce the distinction between liberal and progressive, because I think we're, I, I did an event for AI yesterday with uh, Brother Steyerwalt and um, Thomas, Thomas Chatterton Williams. And um, it's the first time I ever talked to Williams, who's a really interesting, great guy. And um, it was it was clarifying to sort of maintain that distinction, because there are there are liberals who actually believe in democratic discourse and disagreeing and and um, the importance of debate in society and are opposed to cancel culture um, and uh, believe in the importance of facts and reason and all this kind of stuff. And then there are progressives who, to one degree or another, do not. And I'm not saying that all progressives don't, you know, I mean, that's these are not hard and fast kind of things, but it's important to sort of maintain this distinction. We used to maintain this distinction, but talking about like, you know, liberals and leftists. Um, but I don't think that works as well anymore. And I'm, I'm going to mess it up because I grew up my whole life, you know, with this, you know, that liberal meant progressive. And you know where we got this from. Uh, you know, I, I swear I'm getting back to the point I was going to talk about in a second. Um, but the, the whole reason why we, I, I, I must have talked about this on here, maybe I'll do an explainer piece about it. But, um, you know, the reason why we started calling liberals, uh, we, the reason we started calling progressives and leftist liberals is because under the hated Woodrow Wilson, just checking to see if we get our, our, our sound effect, they had so ruined the name progressive um, that um, it was sort of poison at the polls to call yourself a progressive by the you know the mid 20s even though there were lots of like former progressives or people who were objectively progressive they just didn't use the label much and um it was fdr who really realized this and started using the term liberal instead of progressive and what's funny is that you know for people who are on my age who grew up with this idea of you know those damn liberals and all that kind of stuff it took a long time for the left to fully claim the word liberal in American life. Um, I have it written down somewhere, but you know, uh, Taft refer, you know, used liberal in a positive connotation about himself. Um, I want to say 51, something like that. Even Joseph, Joseph McCarthy, uh, who people forget was a former Democrat, um, used the term liberal, um, positively, um, um, before, you know, he was defenestrated. And um, because liberal did not mean left wing until, you know, it meant a bunch of things. It meant open minded, it meant generous, uh, um, um, it meant, you know, in, you know, the, the liberal arts was not code for the left wing arts, although you might say it is today. Um, and, you know, and this is the great peeve of every 22 year old libertarian who comes to Washington who wants to explain to you how. Um, the word liberal really should belong to them. And, you know, they're right. It's just, dude, I've heard it before. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm going to try to maintain that as best I can for a bit. 
and um so where was i oh so you know the there are these ideas that are coming in that are that are treated as sort of fair game for conversation in mainstream liberal life and that's right that's how i got on this um and you do see some liberals um um you know pushing back on some of this stuff you know like and some of it is purely for practical um partisan reasons you know uh you know the smart people in the democratic party are like shh stop using latinx um the smart people in the Democratic Party are, yeah, maybe don't lead with birthing person. Um, the smart people in the Democratic Party are saying, yeah, defund the police was a really, really bad idea. Um, and there are people like uh, Roy Teixeira, who's, I got to say, whose substack is really excellent, and I read, the, read it pretty often, um, who, again, wants his version of left liberalism, you know, sort of democratic liberalism of the sort of, early 90s kind of worldview to succeed, right? I mean, he's not a conservative, but he's like, you know, the war on merit um, in public schools is really turning off Asians in a huge way, um, as it should. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the weakness on crime is uh, turning off a lot of Hispanics, you know, I think, in, I think especially Hispanic women in a lot of areas. And, you know, there is nothing in, um, you know, progressivism, liberalism, you know, democratic orthodoxy uh, properly understood. There's nothing, uh, I'll put it this way, there's nothing inherent to the party of FDR and LBJ that says you have to be soft on crime, right? There's nothing inherent to the party of uh, the historic uh, left of center party in this country that says um, you have to be against notions of academic excellence. Um, and But there are people who want to sort of make it seem like those are all coded right-wing things. And again, in a healthier society, I would kind of say, go ahead and do that because that will be great for Republicans. Um, but anyway, so these ideas that I, I kind of drive me crazy, they're just, you know, you see bubbling up all over the place. I've started noticing um, there was a piece in the New York Times, I want to say like three weeks ago, you know, first couple of days of February um, about ugly freedom or ugly liberty. And basically this was an attempt to uh, define all of the liberties and freedoms that are either enshrined in the Constitution or assumed culturally to exist or politically to exist um, that the left doesn't like and say these are ugly things, right? And that these don't, uh, these are not the liberties that we should care about maintaining. Um, and obviously guns is a big one of them and all that kind of stuff. And then there was a piece just the other day, um, I actually, it's still open on my computer. Um, it's mostly about, you know, how Canadians did bad things too you know, in their history to indigenous people and all that. And I'm not going to defend the Canadians, you know, I'm not going to defend Americans either about what happened to a lot of, you know, native Americans. Um, it's all very sad and, um, and, and, and sometimes shameful, but there was this paragraph, which someone flagged on Twitter, which caused me to read the piece in the first place. 
And this PhD candidate from, I think, UPenn writes, the primarily white supporters of the Freedom Convoy, that's the truckers in Canada, uh, the primarily white supporters of the Freedom Convoy argue that pandemic mandates infringe upon their constitutional rights to freedom. The notion of freedom, now in scare quotes, was historically and remains intertwined with whiteness, as historian Tyler Stovall has argued. The belief that one's entitlement to freedom is a key component of white supremacy. Um, I'm sorry. The belief that one's entitlement to freedom... You know, this is a sentence fragment. That's why it sounds weird to me. I apologize. Anyway, this is the sen this is the sentence as written. The belief that's that one's entitlement to freedom is a key component of white supremacy. This explains why the freedom convoy members see themselves as entitled to freedom, no matter the public health consequences to those around them. Now, that's garbage. You know, um, I can just, you know, like. The idea that these guys waving the Canadian flags and 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 drinking Molson and and cheering and honking their horns are honking, you know, are honking for their whiteness. I just don't buy it. I mean, I, I flatly don't buy it. It's I don't the people's brains typically don't work that way, um, and um, um, you know the important point is those people believe that they have the, their freedoms and they believe it. I believe independent of their conceptual conception of whiteness. Um, but more importantly, I know maybe and look, maybe I'm wrong about that. I am really sure I'm not, but I'm, I am open to the idea that I'm, I'm wrong. Um, uh, but that's not the that's not the the scary part. The scary part is is like, and I, I I'm not going to drag you guys through, you know Herbert Marcuse and uh, all the Frankfurt School Marxists who had all these you know stupid word games about repressive freedom and whatnot. But this basic idea that um, freedom is something only for white people. And therefore should be suspect, which I just see cropping up here and there more and more, is so profoundly depressing. You know, you know, the whole argument for um how to put this, you know, going back to my book, Suicide of the West, right? The argument for like the unfolding of the miracle that started three hundred years ago is how these abstract principles like freedom, individual rights, individual liberty become decontextualized from race and ethnicity. So yes, absolutely true. If you're talking about uh, concepts of freedom in uh, 1820 South Carolina, they are deeply wrapped up in whiteness for want of a better term, but yeah, in race, sure. Absolutely. In fact, you know, uh, less so than whiteness, which is a really sort of still fairly modern concept, but ethnicity, um, rights for uh, certain ethnicities um, 
or members of certain classes within ethnicities uh, is a really complicated and difficult thing to understand. And I got to tell you, the, the Mike Duncan English Revolution or English Civil War podcast, which is the first of the English of the revolutions podcast, it helped me understand some stuff about the rhetoric of 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 English politics in the 16th, 17th and 18th century that I, I think I understood you know, intellectually well enough, but I really just didn't get in my gut the same way. And it's, it's funny. It's sort of like, you know, the, you know, that often talked about sign, um, at that tea party rally where the tea partier has, you know, government, keep your hands off my Medicare, um, which liberals loved to mock for understandable reasons. Um, that was an instance where like freedom and entitlement were kind of wrapped up together in people's minds and and there was a lot of that in um uh 16th and 17th and i'm and obviously earlier um britain and I, I would assume europe as well right where you would get you get the you see people with the you know saying these things that like um the crown must respect my liberties and the these statements would come from noblemen who had these absolutely ridiculous entitlements you know and that's where the actual word entitlement kind of comes from as you get title to a piece of land or a property or some other uh, uh piece of capital that you can draw rents from right um uh people was you know you'd have these guys speaking in the language of liberty when what part of what their conception of liberty was was to draw money from other people's labor and other people and and like and and property that had, they'd inherited for five generations and um so yeah there were these concepts of uh freedom that really were more about entitlement and status and it gets really complicated and hard to untangle and you know it's like um you know if you go into the etymology, the difference between rights and liberties and entitlements gets kind of vague, right? So like, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a debate about whether this actually happened, you know, but like, you know, in Braveheart where you have, you know, the Lord uh, exercising his right to prima nocta so that he can sleep with the bride of one of his subjects, um, i.e., you know, rape one of the wife of the you know the bride of one of his subjects uh that concept was like he was at liberty to ex exercise his rights to do something absolutely terrible right and so that kind of conception of rights um is very old it's it's largely universal where um it meant less the right to be left alone or right to not to have your personal property or your or your you know your personhood infringed upon and more about the claims you were allowed to make on others and the great thing about the last 300 years is that we have disentangled all of that garbage and had a more abstract conception of rights that is applicable to everyone and i know i've talked about this before but just to sort of you know illustrate the point um, you know, when John Locke writes about, you know, the importance of religious toleration, um, he's like, yeah, we got to let, you know, 
the Puritans and the Quakers and the these and the those and um, these different religious sects, you know, have their space and not, you know, tr force them to convert and not persecute them. Um, but he's like, but not the Catholics, you know, because that would be crazy. And then by the time that, you know, Jefferson is writing about, you know, religious toleration for the Virginia Constitution, he's like, not only do we have to be tolerant of uh Catholics, but Hindus, Jews, pagans, whatever, right? Of everybody. And same thing with the Fourth Amendment. You know, it starts as this weird custom and and where, you know, your man's home is his castle and that even a sovereign can't enter a home without permission. Um, and, you know, and now it's this holy sort of, I mean, I want to say it's wholly abstract because there's, you know, a gazillion pages of common law and case law um, to back it up, but the Fourth Amendment applies to everybody, right? Or at least it's supposed to. That no-knock raid thing is really, really bad. Um, um, and so when people, what people are doing when they say that freedom is tied up in white supremacy and whiteness, they're actually put, they're, they're moving the clock backwards. They're taking a step back. You know, the whole point of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech um, was to say that the fundamental principles of the American founding as, as interpreted by Lincoln, which is a really important point, um, have not been consistently and morally applied to African Americans. And his point was, you know, that notions of, of civil rights of freedom are too bound up in white supremacy. And he had a point. And he was saying, we got to take these principles and apply them to everybody because, you know, the best part of the American tradition and the Western tradition is that we are all equal in the eyes of God and of government, regardless of race, creed, and all the rest. And, um, and so the, the whole point of racial progress in the last 300 years, however you want to define race and progress, has been to... Um, disconnect notions of ethnicity or whiteness from these universal principles and what these idiots are trying to do. And I, I use idiot, you know, deliberately. Um, they may be very smart, but you know, uh, they are, they are ensorcelled by idiotic ideas is they're trying to put, um, uh, they, they are trying to do the job essentially of the old racists and segregationists, um, and in some cases, monarchists, um, in the name of the left. And to say that things like, you know, hard work and academic rigor and success are, um, um, uh, are inherently white and the, the modalities of white supremacy. I think it was Matt Lewis, he had a good piece about the San Francisco school board stuff. Um, he had a quote, apparently there was some email that leaked from one of the school board members who said that Asian Americans were like um, slaves who worked inside the, 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 in the house, you know, inside the, the master's mansion kind of thing, because they have, I'm butchering the quote, but the gist of it was they have internalized um, white notions of excellence and academic rigor and merit, um, uh, to get ahead for themselves. And this, this kind of thinking infuriates me and it depresses me so unbelievably. Again, I'm, 
I, I hate the word bourgeois because it sounds like someone should smash my guitar against the wall of the Delta house, but I am bourgeois through and through. I like the, the, the family values, middle-class norms of hard work, entrepreneurialism, delayed gratification, uh, honesty, decency, um, that whole kit and caboodle. I, and that's the success sequence. That is what is the path, the best path. That is what illuminates the best path towards life satisfaction, towards material prosperity, towards giving your kids a better life. It is not a guarantee because there are no guarantees in life, yada, 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 fine. But it's better than the alternatives. Um, it is a path that you can see has been trod through the jungle of the chaos of, of, of life by people who came before you, they figured out that this path is the less dangerous path. It's the less risky path. That's why it's a path in the first place. When you were in the, in the wilderness, there are paths because animals have figured out this is a better path. This is a better route than the alternatives. And as more animals and as more people use the path, the path becomes even more reliable because it widens, it deepens, it becomes less overgrown. Um, and the same thing goes with the march through time of generation after generation. The, these habits of the heart, um, are, uh, the best ways to organize a society, a culture, a community. doesn't mean you can't have your, your free spirits who let their freak flags fly and all that kind of stuff. That's all fine. You know, different courses for different horses. Fine. But we're talking about particularly for immigrants and poor people and um um and the rest you know the people who 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 need to know what the right strategies are to navigate life because they have less financial capital or political capital or social capital to rely upon to take risks and be entrepreneurial with with their lifestyles um these bourgeois norms are the are the are the bee's knees and um, to say that they're to, to sort of culturally try to erect barriers for non-white people to emulate those ideas and practices and habits of the heart is so unbelievably immoral. I um, mean, you know, thank God for the Jews that the Jews recognized a lot of this stuff early enough that no one could tell them, oh, yeah, you know, um, emphasizing education and family solidarity and delayed gratification and hard work. Uh, you know, that's for Christians. That's not for Jews. That would have been absolutely disastrous for the Jews. Um, telling Asian immigrants that they're somehow, uh, less moral, less fit, less decent, uh, you know, less than, um, uh, because they want their kids to have a better life than they do. And they follow those bourgeois habits and, and priorities is so grotesque. It is just so unbelievably grotesque to me. And, um, and telling people more broadly that, um, notions of freedom are really just, uh, hypocritical, uh, uh, boilerplate for white supremacy is is just evil and it's also just friggin not true i mean seriously was the emancipation proclamation issued in the name of white supremacy did we get rid of jim crow in the south in the name of white supremacy 
um, you know, when Martin Luther King says free at last, free at last, is is he really saying, you know, white supremacy at last, white supremacy at last? I mean, it's just so obviously illogical, never mind immoral. And these the you know, forget the bourgeois norms for a second. The norms enshrined in the in the in the First Amendment, you know, which everyone wants to just boil down to free speech, but the First Amendment is also about freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of association. Um it's a, it's it's fundamentally about the dignity of individual personhood. You're going to tell me that um, those freedoms, those liberties, which are no longer, you know, no longer come with like um, uh, entitlements to some serfs labor, um, but are actually about the, you know, the sovereignty of the individual and the idea that each soul, that, that all of us are captains of ourselves. You're going to tell me that that idea is really one of white supremacy. Um, I mean, just give me a break. It's just, first of all, the concept of white supremacy didn't, you know, contrary to the 1619 project was really not a thing during the, the American revolution, right? We were, you know, the Americans were rebelling against other white people and contrary to the 1619 project, they weren't rebelling to keep slavery. That's just a pernicious, ahistorical lie. Um, so anyway, it's, it, it, it disgusts me this what is the most clever way we can argue that things conservatives like are bad and racist kind of thing is causing pe some people on the left to basically take a sledgehammer to the soapbox that they're standing on and unwind some of the most fundamental moral and philosophical um, leaps of progress in all of human history so they can get a clever line in the on the Washington Post or New York Times op-ed page. It's very, very depressing to me. There should be, I mean, most of American history, the both parties competed over who cared more about liberty, who cared more about freedom. And I can give you chapter and verse about how I don't like, I didn't like the left's version of freedom because it was too much, uh, there was too much positive liberty, as the political scientists or p political philosophers might say, rather than negative liberty built into it. You know, the idea as enshrined in FDR's, uh, you know, Economic Bill of Rights, which was part of his uh, last State of the Union address in 1944, where, you know, he says, necessitous men are not free men, and that he wanted a new bill of rights that guaranteed you much more like a Soviet version, right? Where the guaranteed you a job and guaranteed you a home and guaranteed you healthcare and guaranteed you this and guaranteed you that and gave you things. That was a big part of the sort of the liberal conception or progressive conception of freedom. But still people argued about freedom and even, you know, debates about abortion debates about, you know, I, when I was coming of age politically, it was the left that was more free speech than the right. You know, they were against, um, I shouldn't say that in certain contexts, right? They were against censorship of like, you know, and, and record la and labeling explicit lyrics and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like free speech stuff, it, it didn't cut neatly across left, right lines, but now you have like the ACLU, which is just, you know, objectively woke and buys into these, you know, crazy arguments about, you know, policing language, police and speech. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's lost. It's, it, I shouldn't say it's lost because we usually, when we lose things, um, that usually implies 
that it was an accident. No one loses their car keys on purpose. They abandoned. They forfeited. Um, they threw overboard their reputation as uh, as hyper consistently in favor of free speech, and are instead basically just uh, you know another regiment in the army for social justice, and you know the social justice as a philosophical framework is basically just Calvin Ball. It's like we get to change the rules um, so that we always win. And there's no, there's no through line of logical consistency to any um, major campaign for social justice. And trust me, I can get deep in the weeds on the whole social justice thing. And maybe I'll do one of those interstitial things on it. By the time this comes out, there may be a war in, in, in Ukraine. So I said, Chase, say something about it. I, I got to say, um, I was pretty critical of the Biden administration at the beginning of all of this. I thought they were too late um, to the story. Um, I do think that they erred. Um, and the reason I say erred rather than erred, you know, like to err as human, is I had a professor in college who told me that um, that the correct is like error. It's like the first three letters of error, er, um, and that to say to err is to say to fart, and it's always stuck with me, even though I think uh, um, colloquially it makes me sound weird, but it just always comes to my head. Thank you, Professor Munns. Um, where was I? Um, yeah, so I, I have my criticism of the Biden administration. I think they were they were too late to recognize the problem. I think that they. Um, made a mistake in not supporting sanctions for the troop mobilization. Like, I mean, what, what, I don't think that Putin wanted to invade Ukraine. I think he was trying to intimidate Ukraine and the West into doing what he wanted without having to fire a shot. Um, and that still may be his goal, <clears throat> but that alone is, um, should be seen as unacceptable and there should have been sanctions for it in part to say that behavior that kind of what they call coercive diplomacy is not acceptable um and also in part to give them a taste of how bad it would be if they followed through with an invasion um i mean let's put it this way if we loaded up the seventh fleet and surrounded i don't know bermuda with gunboats or if china surrounded taiwan you know with with gunboats and it wasn't necessarily a blockade but it was a super intimidating pre-invasion display of force and saber rattling um and said you know you have to change your foreign policies and the west has to change their foreign policies um and oh by the way this is just an exercise um uh that kind of thing you know should get pushback and not just talky talk pushback but like sanctions pushback um it's sort of like, you know, in movies where you see a guy saying, come, let us reason together. Let's have a conversation about this. And then they pull out a 45 and just lay it on the desk, right? There's a there's an inherent intimidation attempt here, and Putin should have been punished for it. Um, I think that would have been the wider, wiser strategy. I also think, you know, you know, I got my problems with Ted Cruz these days, but he was largely right about Nord Stream 2 and the Biden administration was wrong. So there are lots of things leading up to all this that I think they got wrong, um, or at least I think it's plausible that they got wrong. 
but I gotta say, I, I kind of like, I like the way they've been handling it. Um, and I, I think this sort of releasing of intelligence or, you know, it's funny, people keep saying that's the way it's always phrased. And that may be in fact true. Um, and it is bad when governments lie. I will, I will stipulate that, but you know, people keep saying, oh, they're releasing intelligence about what Putin's going to do next. And, you know, they're going to invade on the 16th or they're going to release this, you know, this deep fake video or all these kinds of things. And everyone's giving the administration the benefit of the doubt that they actually have intel to back up all of these claims. It's not 100 percent obvious to me that they do have the intel to back up all of these claims. And at a certain level, that's OK with me. Um, you know, the, whether, whether they do or don't, the, 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 the sort of smart thing, I'm, I'm so loath to say genius, but the smart thing about what the administration is doing is, um, they're, they're constantly issuing these spoiler alerts essentially, right? Um, or these, I should say these spoilers where they say what Putin's going to do next and it's going to make Putin look, it makes it, so it makes Putin look lame, um, and deceitful if he actually does what the Americans say he's going to do and it puts him on defense. And, you know, if, if I keep saying, you know, uh, you're going to claim you were provoked and, um, punch me first and then you punch me first uh, you can't say, oh, I was provoked. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just makes it more difficult to convince people that that's true. Um, and I think it's been a, it's been a surprisingly smart way to do it. And the fact that the bottom, I mean, who knows what has been offered behind the scenes, but at least publicly the hard line against any attempt to say that Ukraine, um, can never join NATO, even though I'm not necessarily in favor of Ukraine joining NATO. Um, I think has been smart and principled. Um, this is sort of treatment of going back to the 90, 1997 NATO um, being rejected out of hand, I think is smart and principled. And, you know, we'll see how this goes. This idea that you're hearing from parts of the jackass left and parts of the sort of pro Putin jackass right that if if Putin invades uh, Ukraine, it'll be America's fault. It's just so incredibly stupid to me and so anti-American. Um, uh, totally open to the idea that we, you know, America, Democrats or Republicans or just America foreign policy writ large handled Russia wrong, handled this situation wrong. But, you know, if it's, it's like saying that, you know, it's America's fault that Putin invades another sovereign country, um, rides roughshod over a border and, and starts killing civilians um, is America's fault. Basically, what that does is that it, it, it takes away all of Putin's agency and basically makes him like the weather and says that all of the moral imperatives are um, and an agency is with the United States of America. Um, you know, a judge can make a mistake and let someone out on bail who shouldn't be let out on bail. Cops can handle, um, a career criminal the wrong way. 
But if the guy out on bail or the criminal goes out and murders somebody, it's not the judge's fault. It's not the cop's fault. Do they deserve criticism for handling it poorly? Yes. Um, does that require like rethinking our procedures? Sure. But, you know, we still live in a society and in a world, or at least I do, where um, the moral culpability for, for um, your actions begins and ends largely with you. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions to this. If you, you know, raise some kid in a refrigerator box and you torture them and you turn them into a killing machine, yeah, you got, um, you got your share of blame. But you know, Russia. This is Russia doing what Russia thinks is in its interest to do. And if they invade Ukraine, that's not America's fault. And I just got to say, I, I have such contempt for so many of the people, um, uh, who are taking these weirdly it's weird i mean like the the, the pro putin pro putin types on the right i think are kind of just getting high on their own farts and don't know what they're talking about and they're kind of taking uh this anti-american pro strongman position for all sorts of of reading reasons extraneous to or external to um the reality of the foreign policy situation. Um, but like, there's this whole cohort on the left that, um, you know, does the whole blame America first stuff, all that kind of thing. But, you know, I saw some, there was some guy, I think he writes for the intercept who was just, you know, using this language of like, you know, if Putin takes back Ukraine, um, the assumption being that, you know, the inherent assumption built into that being that that Ukraine belongs um, to Russia or that there's a claim, which you hear all over the place, right? Including on the right, you hear from Putin that Ukraine is part of Russia. It, it belongs back with Russia, all this kind of stuff. Um, um, and so therefore, we have to be grownups about this and, you know, and 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 give the baby his bottle or in this in this case, a sovereign country of 40 something million people. Um, and. You know, it's just amazing to me the way uh, this kind of power worship, um, and I'm, I'm and I'm working on the good faith assumption that these people are not funded by Russia in any way, which in some cases I'm not always sure of. But you know, there are definitely people making these arguments without getting a paycheck um, from Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, it is amazing to find the people who will talk to you ad nauseum about how uh, how Israel needs to be a pariah state because it occupies Gaza, which it doesn't. Israel doesn't occupy Gaza. Um, um, that occupation um, in the Israeli context is one of the greatest evils in all of the universe, even though they often get the facts about what occupation is or isn't or how it works or any of that kind of stuff wrong. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But... Russia is occupying chunks of Georgia right now. Russia is occupying chunks of Ukraine right now. It took Crimea. And you have all sorts of people making apologies for that. Um, well, you know, that's Putin. Or, oh, you know, Crimea only left after Stalin and yada, yada, yada. And, um, and as a historical analysis, some of that stuff has merit or is interesting or whatever. 
but you cannot take the 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 sort of viciously anti-Israel principles that or or um, rules that people think are claim are universal rules that they apply to Israel, and then they completely turn a blind eye to them for places like you know Russia and China. I mean, you want to talk about occupation? Look at Tibet, right? Um, I mean. You want to talk, you know, people talk about, well, Israel, every time there's a conflict between Israel and Hamas or Hezbollah, countless people talk about genocide. You know, oh, this is Israel trying to to commit genocide. Um, Israel, the Palestinian population has grown dramatically over the last 50 years, as people have said the entire time, the Israelis are committing genocide. Um, it is a weird form of genocide where the population increases the entire time you're perpetuating it. And again, I don't want to get into an argument about what is good or bad about Israeli policies, but the people who use these kinds of terms um, just go blind when it comes to places like Russia and China. Um, same thing with like just racial discrimination stuff, Jim Crow stuff, anything that you think is bad about how you know, the, anything that you think lends credence to the idea that Georgia is a Jim Crow state, which it's not, um, you got to offer me an explanation about why, you know, China is uh, not several hundred orders of magnitude worse. And yeah, you can say, well, I care, you know, like China isn't my country and I care what happens more about what hap I care more about what happens in my country than some other country. That's all fine. But the rhetoric that all these businesses use when they boycott places like 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 Georgia or North Carolina over various controversies, they do it in universal terms, and then they go on making you know their widgets in in Xinjiang or however you pronounce it, you know, with you know forced labor and with you know in sight of Uyghurs being you know wiped out, and um, so I, just, I have so much contempt for like. The people who want to claim very clear moral righteousness about why America is wrong and Putin deserves all of these benefits of the doubt or China deserves benefits of the doubt, but we can with great confidence assume that America is the bad guy. Um, anyway, I, I, I could go on and on about that. I did. Do, I wanted to say just a word about PJ. <sighs> I'm supposed to write about PJ today. A bunch of places asked me to write about PJ. Um, I don't. I just don't know if I have it in me. Um, a lot of great stuff has been written about him already. Um, Matt Labash, uh, John Podoritz, go check those out. I don't know if Andy Ferguson, who was very close with PJ, has written about him yet. Maybe it's too soon for him. But um, you know, I knew PJ. I had many conversations with him. Um, I got drunk with him a couple times. I talked about this a bit on the Glob podcast if you want to get more into it. And and Rob and uh, Rob Long and, and Pod both knew PJ much better than I did. Um, I'm, you know, I wasn't of PJ's generation. He was like two, over 20 years older than me and um, didn't live in DC. He came by. I was on some panels with him. I think I did the Bill Maher show with him. That's where he explained to me that um, I think that's where it was. Um, it's weird how faulty memory and conversations with PJ seem to go together. I wonder what could explain that. Um, but PJ, uh, that I think it was, I, I think it was then when I was with out doing Bill Maher before I boycotted the show, um, where he, uh, 
he told me that you have to understand uh, the liver is a muscle and it gets stronger with exercise. Um, um, and you know, I'll repeat myself a little bit from the Glob podcast. And I was talking about this dispatch live thing. You know, PJ was very funny. There's no getting around that. He was a, a one of the great satirists in American history. I think that's absolutely true. He was also just really, really smart. And he knew a lot of things and he was a good reporter. And I always felt like he didn't get the credit he was due for being as smart and as insightful as he was because he was funny. And so in a very weird way, he was a cautionary tale for me. Um, there was a time when, um, like my speakers bureau, if you go back, you can, the bio is probably still on the web, you know, where I had a, you know, the speakers bureau that would bill me as, is generation X's PJ or work. And I think there was even some NR billing along those lines. And, and, and Steve mentioned this in the dispatch live thing saying like, you know, I'm sort of like a PJ or work type. I don't want to be a PJ or work type. I very deliberately veered away from being a PJ or work type in part because I'm not as funny as PJ. Um, and, um, um, and, and when I say that, I mean that both in terms of quality and quantity. Yeah. I'm sure I've cracked a joke. That's as funny as a lot of PJ's jokes. Fine. But the thing about humorous writing, the, the second you become a humorist, you are expected to be funny in your writing all of the time. And I just didn't want that. Um, it is, that is really, really, really hard. Um, and it is, uh, it's sort of self ghettoizing in a weird way. And look, and for some people, you know, one man's ghetto is another man's, um, you know, uh, calling, you know, I mean, like there are some people who love singing and there are other people who don't love singing. And if you don't love singing, you probably shouldn't be a singer. If you love expressing yourself all the time as a humorist, then there's nothing ghettoizing or constraining about being a humorist. That's perfectly fine. But I really bristled at the expectation that I was going to be expected to be funny in everything I wrote all of the time. I wanted to have a distinct voice. I wanted to be able to be funny, but it's, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the times you know, I get feedback from people about, you know, how funny this G file was or how funny that column was. And it's not obvious to me that when I was writing it, I was trying to be funny. Um, part of the way I write is I just make these weird analogies and metaphors because that's how they come into my head. Um, you know, maybe they come through my feelings. I don't know. But, um, um, and like, I'm sometimes surprised that people thought it was so funny because, uh, to me, I was just talking to the reader and, um, anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. And I don't, I don't want to make this about me. Um, but I just, you know, I, I have just enormous professional envy and admiration of PJ. Um, um, you know, and if he had less of the expectation as a humorist and more as a man of letters. And I think John Pod is, is absolutely right. Um, even though he was like the even though PJ was like the Mencken fellow at Cato, his real similarity is with, uh, Tom Wolf. Because you know, PJ just had this keen eye for the false pieties and ridiculousness 
of American life. And like Tom Wolfe, he came from this sort of middle class, dare I say, bourgeois background. And he could see how all the prancing aristocrats of our secular um, caste system were, were jackasses and he could call it out. And, um, um, but I'll just close on the thing about PJ, the, the, the really remarkable thing about PJ and the place where he wasn't a cautionary tale, but he was actually a reinforcement of something I try to live by. Um, that I also learned from William F. Buckley and, you know, a few other people, um, is be nice to people, you know, um, I know that comes as a surprise to some people coming from me because I can be pretty caustic in how I write and how I talk, but like in actual day-to-day -day life, um, work on the assumption that everybody deserves a little dignity and that everybody, um, um, and that everybody deserves, you know, politeness and good manners. Um, and if you need to break that, it needs to be because the person that you're, you're, you're breaking form over deserves it and pj is one of these guys i mean there are a lot i can't tell you how many people in washington i have met over the years who are just jerks to the young people who are sort of who are sort of who make the city or make the system work you know the interns the research assistants the aides um the hill staffers all those kinds of things dc is full of young people i was one of them i am no longer one of them and you know, I was a young television producer and I was a young policy gnome RA and intern, you know, at the, at, at AI, I've met people who drew real satisfaction from being jackasses to little people. And I've met people who just went out of their way to be decent to quote unquote little people. And PJ was one of those guys. He just, it just wouldn't occur to him to be rude, um, unnecessarily. Um, and certainly wouldn't occur to them to be rude without embarrassment towards, you know, some, you know, some gopher or some driver or someone who brought him coffee or any of that kind of stuff. He was a fundamentally decent dude who, um, um, took people as he found them. And people are always shocked when I say that was also a lot about that was my experience with William F. Buckley. Maybe other people's experience was different. Um, but it was not my experience with a whole bunch of people and, um, his level of celebrity, particularly in my world, um, was just huge. He was, you know, people like to joke that DC is, um, Hollywood for ugly people, which I've never thought was actually true, although it's becoming more true. I think Paul Begala first said that, um, but PJ, because he wrote for Rolling Stone, he was National Lampoon guy, all that kind of stuff. He talked openly about doing the drugs and all that kind of thing. Um, he was really close to an actual like movie star kind of celebrity for people of my generation, particularly in my line of work, and um, and just couldn't be a nicer guy. Um, you know, didn't really didn't necessarily leap across the room to hug anybody or anything like that. He was kind of reserved, but um, there was just no dickishness to him. And um, and you know, I'm a big believer in you know. I think it's David Brooks who first you know talked about this about the that eulogies are more important than resumes. And I've been to some DC funerals. Where there's one in particular. I don't want to give up the name. You know 
where it was well attended by important people and it was all and everybody just talked about the resume um you know eulogy means to speak well of somebody um i'm probably butchering the latin but it's something close to that um and you know a resume is or a cv is you know like your professional accomplishments and all that kind of thing and at the end of your life the the stuff that you know you want to be remembered yeah you want your glory your share of glory and your accomplishments and all that kind of stuff but the reason why people are at the end of the day it's this it's this earned success thing right the reason why people are missed is because of the kind of people they were the kind of person they were um and yeah so for a complete stranger they miss his writing or they miss the jokes and all that kind of stuff and that's fine but like um it's a the loss is more real because he was just a good dude he was just a really really good dude and um but i just don't know if i have it in me to write about it so um and i'm gonna be on a plane and i always find it hard to write g files on the plane anyway so i don't know if i'm gonna file today but you'll you'll know if i filed by the time you hear this because this won't come out till tomorrow so anyway i have no idea if i actually close the loop on the things that i started talking about you know because i do this sometimes I, I i start talking about something and then like the russian and the pine barrens i just rush run off and i'm never i can never remember how i got started on it or not never but often and so i'm always terrified that i said oh and the really important thing is and then never got a back to actually explain what the important thing was so i apologize if i did that this time i'm very excited to see my daughter um, the doggies are fine. They're with our, uh, wonderful dog walker, uh, um, Kirsten and staying at her house. Um, the lovely and talented, um, uh, Haley Birdwilt of the dispatch is going to be house sitting for us and, um, and attending to Gracie and she had to bring her Chihuahua mix. Um, so hopefully Gracie and the Chihuahua get along. I'm a little concerned because Chihuahua doggies are small enough to get through cat doors. Um, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And um, again, uh, you know, I'm not begging, but I am asking. If you have, if you don't have the wherewithal, totally fine. But if you can afford to get a membership to the Dispatch, um, um, even the free trial thing. Uh, would be great for us. We think it would be great for the cause. Um, we actually think it would be great for you because we think the product we offer is um, uh, uh, cheap at any price. So let's put it that way. Um, um, or valuable at any price? Why does that phrase work? I don't know. I'm starting to sputter apart. Um, we think it's worth it. We think we provide something of real value. We think we're going to provide more stuff of real value as time goes by. And the more people we can get to sign up and become paying members, the quicker we can do all of the really ambitious things that we want to do. Um, and, um, and the better able we are to model the behavior that, uh, you know, that we think is so lacking out there. So um, if you can swing it, it helps support this podcast. It helps support everything that we do. Um, it means a lot to us. And um, if you can't swing it, don't sweat it. And uh, oh, again, we're doing these dispatch lives every Tuesday night now where um, 
some combination of, of the gang get together. We have drinks, we talk about things. Uh, the first one I thought was okay. Um, I shouldn't say the first one because we've done them before, but like the one this week um, was okay. I mean, the, the substance was good, but um, I think we should have done more Q&A from members. I think we will in the next one. We will certainly do that when I am the host, which I think is for the week after next. Um, I am thinking of, about wacky formats because um, that's the way we're doing it. Each one of us are like rotating as the host and we get to decide the format and the topics and all that kind of thing for the week that we're the host. And so, um, I don't know, maybe we'll make it into a game of quarters, um, um, where you can only give your opinion about current events. If you get the quarter in the glass, I don't know. We'll think about it anyway. Have a great weekend. Um, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.